We are in a series called The Atonement. We generally go through books of the Bibles. Uh, we, Bible, we've been studying the book of Acts, actually, since September. We're on a break from that, and we will pick it up again after we celebrate Easter Resurrection on April 20th. Uh, we'll pick up the book of Acts, chapter 13 is where we are in Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. But right now, we're on a five-part series, uh, sermon number four is today on the atonement at one meant. The word atonement, we've been saying all along, presupposes relationship. That's because atonement has to do with being at one, living in harmony with someone where there was once a separation, a broken relationship. In order to be reconciled, there needs to be, a, or at least have been, some, re- some, some, consolidate, you know, some, some relationship that had taken place. And the aspect that we're looking at this morning on the atonement deals with the reality that our sin has separated us from our God. We've been saying all along that as you observe, as we think through, as we see on the big screen, all that Jesus went through on the cross, it doesn't really explain, doesn't really interpret what the reason was or what the interpretation of what took place on that cross on Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago. We have to look to the scripture. And thankfully, the scripture is loaded from Genesis to Revelation, all about what Good Friday was all about. We're not left wondering. God has revealed it to us. God has revealed to us also in scripture, as we've been saying, that he's a personal God who, out of fullness, not emptiness, created us to be personal beings, to have an intimate relationship with him. But our sin separated, our sin broke that relationship with him. And due to our sin, we are no longer in a reconciled relationship. But God did not forsake us. He has not just turned his back on us, but he made a way to restore that relationship. That's what atonement's all about, restoring that relationship. We saw early on in Israel's history in the book of Leviticus of the law that God has given them the the sacrificial system as a way, or at least a foreshadow, of how to approach him. You can't just walk into the presence of God. That's what he was teaching them. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, a very important verse that deals with sacrifice uh, and animal sacrifices that are required to deal with their sin. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. I don't want to leave you estranged. I don't want to leave you separate. I will give you the life that's in the blood as a means of atonement. It's not just the life that's in the blood, but it's the bloodshed. It's the killing. It's the life that's been required in exchange for the worshiper. Life poured out in death. Life for the innocent given for the life of the guilty. And yet we said in the New Testament that the, 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 the sacrifice of bulls and goats and animals could never take away sins. It pointed to a better and a true sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself on the cross, shed his blood, his life given for our guilt. He's the better and true sacrifice. Secondly, we saw that Jesus is the true and better substitute. The Bible over and over again talks about Jesus dying in our place. Where we should have been, Jesus was. Isaiah 53 talks about that in detail. Then we learn that Jesus was our Redeemer, was the true Redeemer and the true Passover, that Jesus paid the debt that each of us owes to God 
because of our sin and because of his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, he sets us free. He redeems us, sets us free from sin, from hell and bondage, and sets us free to serve, love, and worship. The Bible talks about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We said that Jesus on the cross became our sin offering. When darkness shrouded the cross, it was Jesus taking our judgment upon himself. He's the true Passover. He's the true Redeemer. And the question before us today as we move on, the question that's before us is the question that Job asked his stupid friends in Job 9. And the question is, truly I know that it is so. They're talking about, they were talking about God's judgment and God's righteousness and God's requirement. He says, it is so, I get that, but how can a man be in the right before God? That's an important question. The word right or the word righteous is the word sadak in the Hebrew. It means to be in the right, to be just, to, to have a just case, to, to be vindicated. It's a word that was used in a judge, by a judge in a courtroom declaring someone to be in the right. And, and, and that's the, the very heart and the question in the very heart of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. How, Jesus Christ, how can a man be made right before God? This idea troubled a man back in the 1500s, a certain German Roman Catholic monk, his name was Martin Luther who by his own testimony was a God-hater. But he was studying the book of Romans, and he got to to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That, That simple but very profound truth changed his life, and fueled the Protestant Reformation. The verse was taken from the book of Abaca. In fact, it's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And Luther was blown away trying to figure out how can the righteous live by faith? How can the righteous be given that gift by grace? A righteousness that is, that is available, a, a justice that is available to those who receive and embrace it not through their moral achievements, not through the works of their hands, but we receive it passively by faith, by which a person can be reconciled, be made right, found just, found righteous, to a holy and just and righteous God. Luther, while studying the passage at first, was looking at it in the Latin. That was the the language of of the church fathers in the 1500s, from the Latin Vulgate. Maybe some of you have heard of that. And the word justice in the Latin, usificare, comes from the word justus, which is, means justice or righteousness. And, and the word uh, ficare is an infinite verb. It means to make. So when Luther's looking at this passage in the Greek, excuse me, in the Latin, he, it, it, it appeared to him that God was making someone righteous through, through the sacraments of the church, through other places, through their moral life, making someone who is unrighteous, and then somehow making that person righteous. But Luther went on and said, let me see what this says in the original inspired language, which is in the Greek language. 
The Greek word just, justification is dikaioso, dikaios, and dikaiosone, which means to, not to make someone righteous. Dikaiosone means to declare righteous, to, to count someone righteous, to, to regard someone as righteous. Some of the, old tests, some of the older trans, uh, uh, translations have to impute righteousness. Very different. In fact, the term justice and righteousness in English can have two different meanings, but in the Hebrew and the Greek, it comes from one root word, both in Hebrew and the Greek. And it was there in the moment when when he saw the, the, the original language in which God inspired the writer, Paul, he realized, he came to see that Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, the intrinsic righteousness in a person, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace through faith to people who have no righteousness. He called it eusiste alienum, an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's outside of himself, and that is the righteousness of Christ. Luther writes, I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped with the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture, he writes, took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God has filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me, he writes, a gate to heaven. This is absolutely, I hope you sense it, earth shattering. If you're here this morning, this is the heart, the center of the gospel of Christianity. This is different than all of what Islam teaches. This is different than all what Buddha teaches, all Hinduism, philosophy, secularism, even Judaism. That the work of Christ, the eternal Son on the cross, justifies, makes right by grace through faith alone. How does that happen? How does that really happen? Poor things. We're going to step back. We, we, I, I think in order to understand the truth of what the Bible is declaring, we first begin with who God is. We need to see who God is. We need to see what God requires from us. We need to see the failures and, and ways in which we try to, to justify our own selves. And then we need to see what does it take? How can I be just? How can I be right? It's always good to start with God. Amen? It's always good to start with God. Let, let, let me give you first the, uh, just a simple definition, all right? We'll work backwards from there. A little different than I usually do. To be justified means, again, to be put in the right relationship with God, all right? It's legal, it's forensic, it's courtroom, it's to declare someone righteous. In the Bible, justification is the act of God, whereby he declares, courtroom drama, the believing sinner righteous, just, forgiven, and now they are in a right relation with God, and its basis is on the finished work of Christ on the cross. I know that's a lot to take in. We're going to talk about it. He is 
acting, he declares a believing sinner righteous, forgiven, and a right relationship, and it's on the basis of Christ on the finished work of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you don't know this verse, you should memorize it. That he, God, made himself who knew no sin, he, God, who made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin, becomes sin, dies on the cross in our place for our sins, and now we become the righteousness of God. How does that happen? That's what we're going to talk about. Right? This has to do with courtroom. It has to do with the judge. It has to do with God's acting, God declaring, God presiding as judge and declaring someone right, correct, faithful to the law. Because that's what a courtroom does, right? The judge has the standard. We're going to talk about that, the law. How does a sinner be declared just and righteous in the celestial court of God? Not guilty, fully righteous. Next. Okay. Who God is. Always good to begin with God, right? So the Bible teaches us very clearly in Scripture that God is good, God is just, God is holy, and God is righteous. In fact, righteousness, according to Scripture, is part of who He is. It's an attribute of who He is. The Bible constantly is saying over and over that God is righteous. It means that He's holy, He's right, He's without sin. It means that he's straight, he is just, he is, he is lawful, he is good, he is perfect, he is wonderful, he's glorious. God's righteousness, or the fact that God is righteous, is also, it also means that he himself is the final standard of what is right and wrong. Because he is righteous. It's who he is. He declares, he tells us, this is right, this is wrong. Not us, we, we, it's him. He, he decides for us. It, it is, you know, if we look at it from a legal metaphor, God is the one who rules justly, he rules rightly, he rules honorably, nobly, faithfully, and always truthfully. Psalm eleven seven, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Deuteronomy 32. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and, just and upright is he. Isaiah 45, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's no one besides me. In the New Testament, the Apostle John says it this way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God does not do evil in any way, any shape, at any time, and in any degree. The Bible also declares that God is holy. God is separate from sin, separate from evil. Okay? That's what holy means, otherness or separateness. The holiness also means not only is he separate from sin and evil, he's pure, but he's also separate from all that is common. Okay? Everything is infinitely less valuable than the incalculable value of God himself, okay? For instance, God declared the Sabbath day to be what? Holy. What he's saying is it's separate from the other six days which you shall do the common things that you do. Do them on the six days. But on the seventh day, I dedicated, I separated that from all that is common for day unto worship and service and rest, 
So God's holiness and God's glory is his intrinsic worthiness, his greatness, his majesty, his perfection, his preeminence over all creation, his moral excellence and purity of his character. Stephen, a Puritan, Stephen Charnock, 17th century, writes this, talking about his holiness and glory. It is God's infinite moral perfections crowning his infinite intelligence and power. Without a due sense of God's holiness, we can never exalt God in our heart. And the most distinct conceptions we have of this and the rest of his attributes, the more we will glorify him. J.C. Ryle writes, No attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. The closer we are to God, the clearer our sinfulness is. He says, I am conceived, I am convinced that the first step toward attaining a higher standard of holiness is to first realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes into the the courtroom of God, has a direct encounter with the holiness of God. He says he saw the seraphims flying around, calling out to each other, you know it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness has gone public and his intrinsic value is seen through the whole earth. The fountains, he says, of the threshold shook, the house filled with smoke, And then Isaiah says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. God's infinite beauty, incalculable value, impeccable holiness, traumatized Isaiah. God is like no other. He is wholly different. And the point is, we're sinful, he's perfect. He's righteous, we are unrighteous and flawed. His moral law requires behavior that match his holiness and righteousness and goodness. His justice is the means of him doing all things right. And his justice is a flow of his holiness. He's perfectly, he cannot look at sin. He cannot do injustice. He must punish sin in order to remain holy. It is imperative that we understand this as we move forward. We'll talk more about this even next week. What happens is if we don't understand the holiness of God, if we don't understand the the righteousness of God, if we don't understand who he is, and who he's revealed himself to be, when the question of the cross comes up, when the question of the atonement comes up, when the question of all that Jesus had to go through in order to reconcile us, we won't have the right answer. Oh, it's an example. Oh, yeah, he's just, he's just showing us how much he cares for us. No. No, as we will see. What does God require? That's who God is. What does God require? If you go back to Genesis, you'll read Genesis 1 and 2. God created us in the Imago Dei in his image and likeness. We were created in God's image and likeness. Therefore, we were created with some righteousness. There are certain things that God has given us that reflect him, that, is, that, that he shares with us in his attributes. And there are some things that he doesn't share. Some things that he alone has. Okay? Some things he shares his attributes. Some things he does not share. 
Theologians call it communicable and non-communicable attributes. Those in which he communicates, those in which he shares, and those in which he does not share. All right, for, 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 to show you that I did a little bit of work this week and, and earned my keep, right? Non-communicable, things that God does not share about himself and his character and his attributes is his omnipresence. God is everywhere equally at all times. He's not limited by space and by time. We are. I wish we weren't. I wish I could be at two places at once, but I can't be. God is omniscient. God has complete and perfect knowledge of all things, including the past, present, and future. Some people think they have that, but they don't. God is omnipotent. It means God is all-powerful and gets everything he accomplishes. All of his will will be accomplished. He is immutable. He's unchanging. I wish I could say that about myself. All right? Don't be around. I haven't eaten. It gets ugly. All right? He's eternal, which means he has no beginning and end. We don't know. We, we have a beginning. Okay? So he's not, he doesn't share that with us. But some of the things God shares with us as we look at Scripture and some of the communicable attributes is that God is good. God shares also his holiness with us. We are called to be separate from sin and, not the same way, but we ought to be separate from sin and dedicated, dedicated to God. God is good and God is gracious and merciful. God created us to be good, to be gracious, and to be merciful. God is also just and righteous. And we were created to be just, to do justice, to deal, fair, to deal fairly and righteously with others. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around our broken and twisted and jacked up world to say, there's a lot of unrighteousness around. There's brokenness. There's sin. There is evil. There's oppression. Injustice, wars, hatred, racism. Atrocious crimes being committed. Just when you think, how could anyone do something, someone does it and tops it. Right? The Bible is clear that this spiraling into darkness, the broken social uh, world, spiritual, physical world, comes from sin. The book of Genesis tells us not only did God create us in the Imago Dei with, with, to be holy and just and righteous, it also says that Adam and Eve dealt unrighteously. God said obey, he said no. And they were unrighteous, they did whatever they wanted to do. And because of Adam's sin, the whole world experiences unrighteousness. And if you look at Genesis 3, what you will find is even though Eve sinned first, God came looking for Adam, right? He came looking for Adam. Why? Because Adam was responsible. That's how covenants work. Adam is the head of the covenant. He's the head of the human family. He's the leader, and therefore he's held responsible. They both sinned. They both ran. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord called to the man... And said, where are you? We still think we can hide from God. Men, the Bible says we're ahead of our homes. You've heard me say this over and I'll keep saying it. What does that mean? It means responsibility. It means what you do and what we do implicates those under our leadership. Again, that's the way covenants work. Men are primarily, not solely, but primarily responsible for the condition of their home before God. They're the head of the marital covenant. And primarily, not solely responsible for the covenant to be kept. Some of you say, but it's not my fault. And I'll say, well, maybe not, but it's your responsibility. Did Adam take responsibility? No. He ran and he blamed Eve. But God held him responsible. And from that time on, 
from Genesis 3, his lack of responsibility, his lack of headship, his rebellion against God, the entire human family descended from the Adam are now, the Bible says, born with a sinful nature. You and I are sinners by natures and by choice. Because Adam's sin has been imputed, there's that $5 word again, imputed to us. And I need you to track with me. Imputation means that his guilt and his transgression has been counted to us. It's been transferred. It's been attributed to our account. That's why Psalm 51 says, from your mother's womb, we are sinful. Romans 5 says this, listen carefully. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we're talking about him, his name is Adam, and death through that sin, and so death, because of Adam's transgression, spread to all men, because all have sinned. Adam is our father biologically, spiritually, and we descend from him. And when he chose to rebel, he chose in our stead. He chose, and we were imputed with him in his sin and his rebellion. He chose for all of us. And some of you are thinking, well, wait, 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 wait. That's not fair. Why, why did what Adam did years ago have anything to do with me today? Well, you can think that if you want, but it doesn't change the reality of your sinfulness. But if you think that's unfair, that Adam's choice, Adam sinned, Adam rebelled, and therefore all of us are guilty, all of us have sinned, all of us have been separated from God, hold that thought. I'm going to get you to change that at the end of the sermon. But think of it this way for now. What, you do, what people do in your life right today, right now, implicates you. Doesn't it? Think about it. My wife used to work for a place called Stiefel Lab. Stiefel Lab decided one day that they were going to sell their company to GSK, GlaxoSmith & Klein. The CEO did not call my wife and say, hey, Mary Beth, um, we're thinking about selling. What, what do you vote? Like, they didn't care what she thought. The owners got together. The companies got together. They decided to sell. And when they sold, the company sold to GSK. They shrunk the office that my wife was in. And after a while, it was time for her to go. There's no need for her there. She didn't show up the next day and go, you know what? I didn't vote. You guys never asked me. You guys never asked me what my opinion was. You did not ask me my vote. I'm just going to work. They'll be like, you're crazy. Either you get out of here, we're calling the police, right? That's what they would do. So what they do implicated her. Some of you may not like the idea of the same thing with the President of the United States. What he does as the leader and the head of our nation implicates us for good or for bad whether you're left or right, whether you're, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're blue or red, that's just the way it works. Right? He's the head. He makes decisions that affects us. It costs us. It involves us. And we're identified with it better or worse. And, and same with Adam. He is our representative. He is our head. So now we're all have been implicated in his rebellion against God, and now we're all regarded as descendants of unrighteousness. That's why, again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. I need you to hear that this morning. Because you've been lied to. We've all been lied to. Sin's hard to talk about, but it's a reality. And unfortunately, our approach to sin in our culture and in our day is not repentance, but how can we use this sin to gain prosperity. That, that, that's really what we do. What the Bible calls sin, we now use so that we can grow in prosperity. We could make money. We can, we can fulfill our own desires, right? Lust sells perfumes and soaps 
and you see all the commercials, whether it's a guy's cologne, whether it's selling tires, there's lust everywhere to get you to say, I need that, and go out and buy it, right? Envy and greed sells cars. Laziness is like, you know, you need to be your own individual. Whatever feels good, do it. And then the sin of pride, the mother of all sins. Now we call it self-esteem. The truth is, we are all unrighteous. If you don't agree with me, if you, if you say, you know what, I'm not sinful. That's an archaic term, I am not sinful. Later on, just ask the person in your row. And they will affirm everything that I've said. And what God has said in 1 John 1, 9, that if you say you have not sinned, you're calling God a liar. I have not sinned. God's like, yes, you have. You're like, no, I haven't. You're like, all right, you're calling me a liar? Um, yeah, I'm calling you a liar, God, because everybody else is sinning. I'm not. God's like, no, I don't think that's the way it works. Remember, I'm righteous, I'm just, I decide what's right and wrong, and you're a sinner. And you all have sinned. And now, because we're in this unrighteous state, Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not one person. No one is righteous. We are antithetical and opposite of God who is straight. We're crooked. God's good. We're corrupt. God's pure and clean. We're unclean. God is holy. We're unholy. God does, always does what is right. We constantly do what is wrong. God is always just. We are always unjust. God is lawful. We are dissenters. God is perfect. He is holy. He is just, but we aren't. And God cannot, listen, God cannot and will not embrace sin. His holiness, his righteousness is a repellent towards sin. And James tells us that if we have kept and try to keep the law, and try to live up to God's perfection, but we violate just one aspect, one time, one motive, one deed, one unrighteous act, we are accountable to them all. And because that is true, the Bible says that we are separated from God. We don't live up to God's standard. And I'm going to give you another term before we move on. The Bible says that we are at enmity, that we are at war with God. See, I'm not at war with God. If you don't know Jesus, you're at war with God. Romans 8, 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set, for the man who is set on doing what he wants is hostile, is enmity toward God. For he does not submit, he does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What he's saying is there's a life uh, that is pleasing to God is one of moral purity, not only in actions but in desires. But we have rebelled against God. We put our finger in his face. We want to be our own God. We want to do what we want. Emil Brunner says it well. He says, sin is defiance, arrogance, the desire to be equal with God, the, asser, uh, the assertion of human independence over God. God's very, they're really simple. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. Here's my moral standard. Here's my perfection. I'm righteous, good, holy, and just. I made you that way. Live it. And the law shows us we cannot. John Calvin writes, For God, who is the highest righteousness, cannot love the unrighteous that he sees in us. All of us, therefore, have in ourselves something deserving of God's hatred. With regard to our corrupt nature and the wicked life that follows it, all of us surely displease God, are guilty in His sight, and are born to the damnation of hell. 
All men, being sinners, are justly chargeable with inexcusable ungodliness and immorality. They cannot be saved by any effort or resource of their own. Giving you the bad news before I give you the good news. But good news is only good news when you know the bad news. The primary condition of the heart is not indifference. The primary condition of the heart is not indifference. It is not ignorance. It's not, it doesn't need education. It doesn't need motive. The Bible tells us the primary condition of the heart is sinful, rebellious hostility. Sinful and rebellious hostility against God. And our greatest need is reconciliation. Paul tells us that the separation, the separation that, that our sin has caused us to be separated from God has to be dealt with so that there can be atonement, that there can be reconciliation between a holy God and an unrighteous people. The Bible says that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the thing, and I want you to see before we move this on. We long to be just. We long to be righteous. We cannot accept the fact that we are unrighteous, but because of our sin, what we do is we seek, we pursue, we run after our own righteousness apart from God. I've said this before. Everyone is seeking, continually seeking, to build value, self-worth, and identity apart from God in order to feel, in order to know, in order to sense that you're somebody, that you have meaning in life, and whatever that is, it becomes your God, small g, your functional savior to justify yourself. Whether it's your talents, whether it's your money, whether it's your, your children, whether it's your relationships. And the Bible calls that sin of self-righteousness. And we're told over and over, oh, you're such a good, all you need to be a wonderfully good person and just do the right thing. Now there's a sense of Christ esteem, which I call it, where you're getting your value, your sense of worth, and your purpose rooted in your relationship with God. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting an identity, an image, a self-image, apart from God, self-justification, self-righteousness. We're all doing it. And this is where we fail. Two ways. One, through religion and through rebellion. Through religion and through rebellion. There are people who live in rebellion. They seek to be their own gods, their own savior, and they're dealt all they're about is worldly pride. I'll be my own God. I'll do my own thing. No one tells me what to do. I am a self-made man. Justifying my actions, justifying my need to exist, justifying my purpose simply by being my own God. I'll determine what's right and what's wrong. And because of that, people in that attitude reject Christ because receiving Jesus, bowing your knee to him, recognizing that you're not righteous, but he is, um, there's a clash of war. There's a war. There's, there's conflict of who's God and who is not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really work. Like the prodigal son, at the end of the day, when all the money is gone, all the friends are gone, there's nothing left, and you're eating out of the pig pen. Right? You're left empty. You see the movie, God is Not Dead. If you haven't, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. You cover your ears. There's a woman in the movie... Uh, the self-made woman, you know she is, she, she does the interviews, who is dating a man who is re, you know, running up the corporate ladder. It's a self-made man. She was a self-made woman. And together they just used each other to justify one another's existence. 
As long as they were using each other to fulfill their own desires, everything was good. Until one day the doctor told her, you have cancer. I began to cry. My daughter looked at me like, I can't believe he's crying in the movie theater. (laughs) And if that wasn't enough, she tells her boyfriend, broken, shattered, her self-image, her self-justification is crumbling, and he's like, that's your problem, not mine. This doesn't benefit me at all, and walks out on her. And I cried again. Now she's all alone trying to put her shattered life back together. She lived in this life of self-righteousness, and now it, it showed itself what it really is. It was, it was worthless. It had nothing. There was nothing left. Her life, her image, her idol came crumbling down. Her self-justification disintegrated. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, actually two sons, Jesus was addressing them. One was, a, one was a young boy. He talked about a young man who was corresponding with the tax collectors and sinners. And this young boy took his inheritance, ran off, and, and, and in an effort to, to find himself, to do what he wanted to do, to live his own law, to get away from the family, to, to leave his home. He found himself in a pig pen, as I said. But there was an elder brother in that story, too. He corresponds with the Pharisees and the Bible-thumping religious people, the moralists, those who try to find their justification through religion. And what Jesus is saying to us in that, in that Luke 15 is there's, there's two ways to justify yourself. The rebellious son who rebelled against the family, and then there's the moral son who, in his self-righteousness, becomes a little more dangerous, I think. We look at the, what we do is we look at that story, we see the guy in the pig pen, and we say... Wow, we could, you know, it's clear this guy don't have it together. He's, he's eating pig junk. It's harder to see the self-righteous religious moralist who tries to justify themselves in their behavior. It's much harder to spot. Tim Keller writes this, talking about the moralist who tries to justify himself through rules. And it's a book called The Prodigal God. He says, The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, But because of it, it is not his sins, talking about his brother's sins, that created the barrier between him and his father. It was different. He said, it's the pride he had in his moral record. It's not his doing wrong, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father, end quote. Justifying your life through obeying the law of God is religion, not the gospel. Okay? Driscoll, in a great book called Death by Love, Letters from the Cross, points out a couple of ways that religious people, self-righteous people, moralist people, try to justify themselves through their righteous, good, moral behavior. He says, first, religion says that God will not love me until I obey his rules enough, just enough, so that he will begin to love me. Just enough in order to earn his love. That I will, what? I will continue to work hoping that God will love me. That's like telling my daughters, listen, if you obey everything I say for the next year, at the end of the year, I'll still be your dad. Remember, religion is if I obey, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I serve people, if I do all those things, God will love me, God will accept me. That's religion. The gospel says that God in Christ loves me, accepts me, forgives me, and therefore I read my Bible, pray, and serve others. Major difference between the two. Second, he says that religion tells us that the world is filled with good people and bad people. 
And we like to set up our little chart on what that is. The Bible doesn't call us good and bad. The Bible says there are all people and they're all sinners. There are those who repent of sinners, receive eternal life. There are the unrepented sinners who receive eternal damnation. Not good and bad. Not the good and bad. Third, he says morality and, and religion is all about what you do because religious people quantify their self-righteousness in measurable ways, right? They're proud people who look to what they do and, and, and what they say and, and how they act as a way of self-righteousness, and then they measure it accordingly. This could bring great joy if you live up to your standard. These eight things I need to do in order to justify my life, my existence. If I do all these things, I'm, I got them all done. There's joy. But set the bar a little higher, and what you have is disintegration. What you have is not inferiority, but not superiority, but inferiority complex. Both are trying to live up a standard. One lives up to the standard and finds joy superficial. The other one does not live up to the standard and they get crushed by the guilt and the weight of not living up to that standard. Fourth, he says, religion and moral uh, uh, justifiers are all about getting from God. I'll pray hard. I'll, I'll read my Bible. I'll tithe to the church. And God, now you really owe me. I mean, you wouldn't say, but you really owe me a happy life, a, 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 you know, a healthy life, a successful life. Look at all I've done. I'm serving you well. 1 Peter 3.18 says the goal of the gospel is God himself, period. Period. That the greatest treasure, the highest joy and the source of life is God. And finally he says self-religion or self-righteous religion focuses almost entirely on the external. We overlook the heart. We don't want to talk about motives. We just want to see I did my devotion today. I helped the lady cross the street. It's external. It's not internal. A life trying to justify oneself through running from God, turning your back on God, doing what you want is going to wind up empty, unjustified, and not whole. If you take on your rules and regulations and you take on all the moral things that you, you, you should be doing, but as a means, and it's a slippery slope, of self-justification, self-righteousness, so that God will love you and God will take care of you, you're going to wind up disintegrating. Two ways we justify ourselves, through rebellion and through religion. So how can we be righteous? Religion, morality will not make us righteous. We're not going to live up to the standard. Certainly not live up to God's standard. Be holy as I am holy. Rebellion is not going to get us there. Being our own God, seeking our own Lord and Savior, trying to, trying to run from God, trying to write our own rules, it's not going to justify our lives. So the question is back to Job. How do I know, how can a man be right in the eyes of God? How can a man be right before God? How can a perfect, holy, good, just God reconcile with us who are sinful and rebellious? A God who is absolutely holy, who cannot tolerate sin in his presence who is absolutely just, who, who, who must pay penalty for sin. He doesn't just brush it aside. Why can't God just forgive us? Why can't that judge who just found the man guilty of 10 bodies, murdering 10 people, just say, you're done. We forgive you. You can go. He wouldn't be a just judge. He'd be an unjust judge. God has to punish sin. 
if he is just and he is holy as he has revealed himself to be. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies, Sadak, who makes righteous, who declares not righteous, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So if God intends to justify sinners, he must have some legitimate judicial basis for doing so. You following me? Track with me. We're almost done. Track with me. John Stott said this, justification is not synonym for amnesty, which is pardoned without principle of forgiveness, which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoing and declines to bring it to justice. No, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. When God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners after all. He is pronouncing, he is declaring them legally righteous, free from liability of God's broken law. But how can he do that? How can God be both holy and just and yet deal with our sin problem? Romans chapter 3. Now soak this in. You could turn in your Bibles if not just listen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, that's you and me, may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's our problem. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You can't get it anyway. It was talked about through the law and the prophets. They bear witness. He says the righteousness, the justice, the being made right of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory and are justified by his grace as a gift through a redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. We're going to talk about that next week by his blood, to be received by moral work? No, by faith. This was God's righteousness, okay? God is still just because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now, listen. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? In order to uphold the holiness and the justice of God, the cross becomes the place where the judge pronounces judgment guilty. Crime has been done. You are guilty. And then takes his robe off and takes the punishment himself. The cross of Christ upholds the justice of God and demonstrates his love as well by being the one who is just and the one who justifies the sinner. Paul said it like this at the end of Romans 4. He said, Righteousness will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Credited, imputed. It means to, to account, to, to, to make satisfaction on the cross. What the Bible says is that 
when the gospel says that because Christ is perfect, righteous, and that by faith in his righteousness, it's credited, it's imputed, it's laid on top, it is now counted to us as our own righteousness. Scripture affirms over and over that we are justified on the basis of what Christ did, his perfect life and obedience. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin, perfect, spotless, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the good news of the gospel, is that God declares us to be just on the righteousness of Christ that's been given, that's been accounted, that's been imputed to us. Now, some of you have been taught that the righteousness of Christ has not been imputed to us, it's been infused in us. Maybe you come from that tradition. The Roman Catholic tradition views that that justification is an infusion of grace that makes their sinner righteous, and they blend the doctrine of justification, growing, learning, being more like Jesus, with justification, which is the declaration of righteousness. It's not just splitting hairs. This is hugely important. The ground of justification is something they say made good within the sinner, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Therefore, you work together with God through sacraments, through service, through works in order to obtain righteousness. The Bible clearly rejects that. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. We've read several verses of Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 8. That's the crux of the gospel. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was fully human. He identified with us, yet lived a perfect sinless life. And you say, what is that like? I don't know. I can't even fathom a sinless life. And because of his perfect obedience to the law, his perfect righteousness was counted on our account, imputed to us, and applied to us. His righteousness is what is called the great exchange. Luther said it was the simul justice el peccator, meaning that simultaneously we are righteous before God, yet loved and delighted in, but yet sinful and flawed. In the lectures of Romans, he says, the saints in being righteous are at the same time sinners. They are righteous because they believe in Christ whose righteousness covers them and is imputed to them, but they are sinners because they do not fulfill the law and are not without sinful desires. Folks, that's the heart of the gospel. It's not that somehow I am righteous in myself. It's that Christ's perfect life, sinless death, resurrection from the grave, all that he did, dying in my place, rising from the grave, now has been given to me. It is the great exchange. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. My sin's imputed to him, his righteousness is imputed to me. It is the great exchange. It is the heart of the gospel. It is great news. It's one thing to get an F. Let's say you get an F. You're taking a class, you get an F. And the teacher says, all right, let me see your grade. Your final grade's an F. You fail. You'd be like, ah. Oh. They're like, you know what? We'll erase that. I mean, that's good. But can you imagine if they erased it and put an A? Or listen, Blue, I, I know you owe me $10,000. I'll erase the debt. Sounds good. You know what, though? I'm going to give you $10 million anyway. It's not just a release of judgment. It is the imputation of righteousness because without righteousness, we cannot stand before God. Having our sins forgiven is only half of justification. The other half is that Christ's perfect life is imputed to us. So God sees us not as sinful, wicked, rebellious people, but in the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. 
Do you understand that? And that brings reconciliation. Billy Graham said, the greatest warfare going on in the world today is between mankind and God. People may not realize that they're at war with God, but if they don't know Jesus as their Savior, God considers them at war with him. Romans 5.1, now listen. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We don't even stand only. We rejoice in God, our Savior. Now, I, I, want, to, I, I want to give you three things. I know it's, it's a long one, but just give me three things, practical things I want you to walk away with. Number one, if it's true what the Bible says about our justification, our righteousness, our reconciliation, all that Christ has done, it's not us, it's me. You know what we need to start doing? We need to stop trying and start believing. Stop trying to be righteous in your own eyes. Stop trying to appease God. Stop trying to be reconciled with God by earning your way into his presence. All other religions say do and you'll get. The Bible says that Christ is already done and therefore you will get. It's not about your moral goodness. It's about his. The gospel says trust God. Believe on him and you're in Righteousness will be imputed to him. The Bible says that self-righteousness, I hate to say this, but is, is a menstrual pad and dung. That's what the Bible calls your self-righteousness. So if we come to God and say, look at all I've done, he's going to say, that's gross and that's gross. You have no standing before me. You have no standing before me. So stop trying and start believing. Stop trying and start believing. Christ, and, and let me tell you, if you press that into your heart and you understand that, it will flow with love toward others, with joy, uninhibited love and service for others, understanding that our justification is by grace alone through faith alone will explode in service, not the other way around. will explode in sacrifice. will explode in generosity. Why? Because number two, we are now free to love and serve others without fear. Listen, no matter what anyone says, they can't rob me of the righteousness of Christ. No matter what people do, they can't rob me of the imputed righteousness of Christ and the fact that he died in my place and I've accepted and loved by him. I can serve, I can give, I can be generous, I can love. It doesn't matter what other people say. We've been reconciled by the work of Christ. Third, stop rebelling and start obeying. Stop rebelling and start obeying. You know what freedom is? Freedom in Christ, being justified by Christ, being imputed his righteousness and giving him our sin and dying in our place means we are absolutely free to obey. We are reconciled with God and therefore, and therefore we will do and act in a way that we were created to act and created to do. Not to earn his love, but because he loves us. And sometimes we get into this self-righteous behavior and we get into this looking at people and doing this judging one another and we don't see the big picture of God and how he, the creator God, has created us, died for us, rose for us, lived the perfect life that we could never live. The Bible says, for freedom in Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In Christ... There is neither the, the Jew or the Gentile or the, the circumcised or the uncircumcised, but only faith working through love. So, folks, three things to walk away with. One, stop trying, start believing the truth of who he is, number one. Number two, you're free. doesn't matter what people think or say. You're free to love, serve, and be gracious toward others. And number three, 
Stop rebelling and start obeying. It's not to get God's love, but it's because he loves us. Out of a heart of gratitude, we serve and worship, and we're free to love and be radically generous and caring and loving toward others because it doesn't matter what people say or do anymore. Christ has already secured it for us on the cross. And as the band come up, there's one last thing. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ and you're running and trying to fulfill your own righteousness, you're trying to do your own thing, or you're a moralist and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm judging a lot. Yeah, I'm, I count my good deeds as something I pat myself on the back before God. Listen, today's the day. For those of you who have been justifying yourself and you have not stood in, and, and claimed Christ as your own, has called on Jesus' righteousness, who died in your place, went to the cross, reconciled you to the Father, today's the day. Today's the day you give your life to Christ. This communion table, and I said this at the beginning, the covenant... It's not fair that Adam made those decisions for me and everything that he got, I got. Really? See this cup and that bread? That's because Jesus is our covenant head. And everything he did, everything he got has been given to me. Now it doesn't seem so bad, does it? If you don't like it, you can go back to trying to justify yourself. Live perfectly from now on. It wouldn't work anyway. You already sinned today when you got here. Jesus is the covenant head. All that Jesus accomplished by his perfect life, complete obedience to the Father, and his death on the cross, dying for sin, uh, paying the price for our sin, all that has been given to you if you come underneath him, the Lamb of God, as the covenant head. All that he did implicates you as a believer. Now all of a sudden, the implication of headship doesn't seem so bad. Who are you trusting? Yourself? You can justify yourself? Or are you going to trust Jesus Christ who lived the life we could never live and died the death we should have died in our place and for our sins? The bread's the body that was broken. The blood, the cup of juice is the blood that was shed. If you're a Christian, the table is open. If you're not, quietly in your, in your chair, pray. Talk to Jesus. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins. Embrace Christ. Trust his work on the cross. Tell him I've been running doing my own things long enough. Today's the day. I'm done. You be Lord, your Savior, your God. I trust what you did for me. And then you can come up. The band's going to play. We're going to confess and repent sin as a church. And then when you're ready, come on up and grab the cup and the drink. 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, whom Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not imputing their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we are, or we need to be repulsed by our own self-righteous attitudes. And somehow, some way, we can claim something of our own that we can give to you. Lord, as an affront to your holiness, it is an affront to your righteousness. We are humbly come before you. We humbly come before you and want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Father, we confess our sin of judgmentalism. We confess our sins of, of being a Pharisee. We confess our sins of thinking we're better. Lord, you're better. You're gracious. You're righteous. We are not.
We thank you for Jesus Christ who lived that life, who died to death, and now imputes to us his righteous goodness, Lord. And we pray, Father, as we confess our sins, as we repent of our sins, we will with great joy recognize the gospel that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is our substitute. Father, may that drive deep into our hearts and may it explode with love and service and worship and obedience because of all that you have done. In Jesus' precious name, amen.